16 this morning. Have you heard the quote that's attributed to Ralph Waldo Emerson that says, what you do speaks so loudly that I cannot hear what you say? The famous London preacher Charles Spurgeon agreed. He once said, a man's life is always more forceful than his speech. When, we, when men take stock of him, they reckon his deeds as dollars and his words as pennies. We, we relate to this, right? I, I've known people who were always insisting you could trust them. And, and yet, half the things they said seemed far-fetched and their facts never added up. I've known other people whose talk was full of praise the Lord and thank you, Jesus, and the Bible says, and yet I knew that they were infamous with their neighbors for being the house on the block that the police most often showed up to for a drunken incident or a domestic dispute. And this is just the opposite of what today's passage is calling us to be. Carl read it for us. Do everything without grumbling and complaining, Paul says, picking up in verse 14 so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. In other words, Paul's telling the Philippians that God's people should live lives that show that Christ is changing us and that God is good. People are watching our lives. And if we claim to follow Jesus, we are to live lives which give people a living picture of the difference that Jesus makes. As the infamous atheist philosopher Frederick Nietzsche once told the Christians of his day, if you want me to believe in your Redeemer, you better look a lot more redeemed. (laughs) That's a big responsibility, right? Living a life which reflects well on Jesus can feel like a lot of pressure, in fact. And I know that over the years, there have been two not-so-good ways that I and others I have known have been tempted to respond to this pressure. One way is the root of becoming an incognito Christian. You know, I realize I'm supposed to be a positive reflection on God, and I'm not right now. Maybe because I'm always grumpy and complaining at work, or I'm always biting everyone's heads off. Or or maybe because I know my lifestyle isn't one Jesus approves of. Maybe I'm sleeping with my boyfriend or girlfriend when I know Jesus expects me to save myself for marriage, or, or whatever it is. And so I just figure my life isn't a very good witness, so I'm not gonna let every anyone know I follow Jesus, because that way I won't reflect badly on him. That's one temptation. The other temptation is almost the opposite. It's that we try extra hard to be good, or at least to look good, because we really want, or or rather not because we really want to be good, but rather because we know we're not supposed to reflect badly on Jesus. So we're keeping up appearances so we don't let Jesus down. But but here's the problem. It's a lot of pressure to be what we're not. And, and we can't keep it up indefinitely. Sooner or later, our true self is going to come out. So what are we supposed to do if, if incognito Christian isn't the right way to go and neither is an on-my-best-behavior-so-I-don't-ruin-my-witness Christian? Then what's our alternative? 
Does Paul give us any insight in this passage? I think he does. And to see it, we're going to back up to verse 12 and and put this passage in context. And what we're going to see is that living a life which shines in darkness, which shows the world what life with Jesus is about, isn't primarily, first off, about our outward behavior. Rather, it's first and foremost about our identity. It's about what we are really becoming in Christ and and whether we're committed to becoming those kinds of people. So let's look at verses 12 to 13. Therefore, my dear friends, Paul says, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. The first thing we need to remember as we look at these verses is that Paul is writing this letter to a community, not to individuals. He's writing to a spiritual family who are learning to follow Jesus together in the Greek city of Philippi. And so when we hear the words, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, This isn't a call to an individual to work out his or her salvation as much as it's a call for a community to work it out in their common life together. And what they're to work out is what Paul described for them further up in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 2. Look look up there if you have your Bible. Paul talks in the beginning of chapter 2 about having the same love as God has, being one in spirit and of one mind. He talks about in humility, valuing others above ourselves. He talks about not looking to our own interests, but to the interests of others. And he talks about relationships with one another, which have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. In the context of Paul's letter, that's what it means for them to work out their salvation as a community, to have those kinds of relationships with one another. Because when God saves a group of individuals and brings them together as his new family, as the community of God's people, everything in their lives, both individually and as a group, starts to change. They get redeemed, they get renovated, they get transformed. And and here's the important thing that Paul wants the Philippians to recognize in verse 13. That this is God's doing and God's power. God does the saving, God does the work in us and among us in order to fulfill his purposes. And we get to participate in it and to partner with God in it. So Paul tells this community, continue to work out your salvation. Continue as a community to participate in what God is doing among you. Why? Because God is the one who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. We as a church are God's doing, God's work. God has a purpose for you and for me and for this church family. God is working in us according to his will. He's acting to fulfill his purpose. And what's his purpose? Verses 15 and 16. It's that we would become blameless and pure, children of God without fault, shining like stars in a warped and crooked world. 
that's who we are. That's our identity. When we decide to follow Jesus, we're getting swept up in something much bigger than ourselves. We, we might not have realized it at the time, but God was bringing us into his purposes. Making us lights, meant to shine. That's who we are, that's why we shine. It's our identity, it's, it's who we are now. Bible interpreter N.T. Wright reflects on this and what it means for today's world because we live in a world today that so many people are skeptical or hostile toward Christianity. And so he asks, how can the church announce that God is God, that Jesus is Lord, that the powers of evil, corruption, and death itself have been defeated, and that God's new world has begun? Doesn't that seem laughable in today's world? Well, it would be if it wasn't happening. But if a church is working on issues we've already looked at, if it's already involved in seeking justice in the world, both globally and locally, and if it's cheerfully celebrating God's good creation and its rescue from corruption in art and music, and if, in addition, its own internal life gives every sign that new creation is indeed happening, generating a new type of community, then suddenly the announcement makes a lot of sense. And so Wright talks about how wouldn't it be wonderful if we all belonged to a church where after we told people that God is God, that Jesus is Lord, that the powers of evil, corruption, and death have been defeated and that God's new world has begun, we'd be able to say, you don't believe me? Come and see. I can show you a place where it's happening. That's who we are. That's our identity. That's a big part of what God is up to in saving us and bringing us together as his people. And so another interpreter, John Howard Yoder, puts it this way. The church communicates to the world what God plans to do because it shows that God is beginning to do it. In Christ, a new age has dawned, and the church is to be in an anticipatory presence of that new age and an initial signpost of its coming. That's what God is doing, and he's brought us into it. It's his work among us and in us for his purposes. And so that's who we are, lights shining in darkness. And because this is who we are, our behavior is going to change. The way we live is going to change. Another book I read put it this way. It said, our deeds provide the music that accompanies the lyrics of the gospel. We sang some lyrics without music. Well, we had a melody, didn't we? But Music adds a lot, right? And we did a great job with just the melody. (laughs) But our deeds provide the music that accompanies the lyrics of the gospel. They are the music which helps to display the beauty of those lyrics to the world. I read a, a good example of this in a book called A Search to Belong. The author relates, About a month ago, a woman named Sandra began attending our church. She's 56 years old. She came to our small group last night, and she has zero church background. Four years ago, she was alone on a week-long vacation to Mexico, and one morning by the pool, she struck up a conversation with the young woman sitting next to her. She learned that this young woman was there on her honeymoon. When the bride's husband joined her by the pool, Sandra tried to excuse herself, but they just comfortably kept talking with her. 
Sandra said that off and on during the rest of her vacation, she ran into this couple. They mentioned that they attended a vineyard church in California. Sandra was quick to mention to me, it wasn't like they were trying to recruit me or anything. It just came up in one of our conversations that they were Christians and that they went to church. Sandra was so impressed with how kind they were, and she liked how they treated each other. She went away from them thinking that they had something, values or a lifestyle that she found attractive. She told me probably once a year for the past four years, she had thought about going to church. Finally, she looked in the phone book for a vineyard church because she had no idea where else to go, and she found us. This story is a great example of a quote I once heard. A Christian is someone who makes it easier to believe in God. Tim Keller, a pastor who's had an amazing impact, especially among young people down in Manhattan, remarks, the quality of our community is the real secret to mission. We will not win the world apart from it. The quality of our community is the real secret to mission. We will not win the world apart from it. This is especially true in in today's world where Jesus has gotten so much bad press, often as a result of of some of those who claim to speak for him. And our words are not going to be enough alone to correct this bad impression. It's going to take our lives as we shine like lights in the universe. It reminds me of the story of the Spanish painter Bartolomé Esteban Murillo, who lived in the 1600s. And Michael Frost tells the story in his book, Exiles. Orphaned at age 10, Murillo went to live with his aunt, who was married to a wealthy doctor from the city of Seville. I meant to ask my wife how to pronounce it. Seville? She's been to Spain. Yeah, okay. Um, So their house was... um, was a strict religious household, and, and Murillo was often in conflict with his pious adoptive father. In the middle of the doctor's sitting room was a, a large picture entitled Jesus the Shepherd Boy. And, and Murillo said the picture dominated the family, and its depiction of the, the young boy Jesus was in keeping with the devout tenor of the rigid, rigid house. Murillo said the picture haunted him for most of his time with the doctor's family. The shepherd boy in the gilt frame stood bolt upright, straight and tall, his shepherd crook like a sentinel's bayonet. Around his head beamed an obligatory halo. His eyes were lifeless, averted. His cheeks were rosy and his complexion was unsullied. To the young Bartolome, nothing could be further from his vision of the young Judean shepherd boy. One day, when his adoptive family was out of the house, he removed the picture from the wall and began to work on it with his paint set. (laughs) The stern, unflinching face was given a lively grin. The eyes were enlivened with mischief. The halo was transformed into a battered straw hat. And the plastered-down hair was now tousled and unruly. Jesus' crook was turned into a gnarled walking stick and the somewhat limp lamb at his feet was altered into a troublesome dog. When the doctor and his wife returned home, (laughs) they were so disturbed at the sacrilege committed by their young charge that they forced him to carry the offensive work through the streets of Seville to shame him for his blasphemy. But far from humiliating him, (laughs) the experience provided him his escape 
A local religious icon painter, Juan del Castillo, was so impressed by the playful impression of Jesus that he took the boy into his home and apprenticed him, preparing him for his vocation as one of Spain's greatest religious artists. That's our purpose. That's our calling as followers of Jesus, as a community of Jesus. It's by our lives, by who we are and how we live, to repaint for the world their false pictures of Jesus. Dallas Willard, the the late master of spirituality, wrote, the people to whom we minister and speak will not recall 99% of what we say to them, but they will never forget the kind of person we are. So we must never forget that the most important thing happening at any moment in the midst of all of our duties is the kind of person we are becoming. Let me read that last part again. We must never forget that the most important thing happening at any moment in the midst of all of our duties is the kind of person we are becoming. It's all about who we are becoming as a people and as a community. Becoming, that's the word that Paul uses in verse 15, so that we may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation, so that you may become. It's a process. It it doesn't happen overnight. But, But guess what? It doesn't happen at all unless we realize it's our identity. And unless we commit ourselves to it, unless we pursue it, unless we go after it, in the sermon group this past week, we were, we were wrestling with this. And, and we were realizing that, that growing into the kind of people that God is making us to be takes a lot of faith in God. But we've got to trust him enough to let him lead. We, we've got to trust him for, for what we need and, and what we want so that we're freed up to follow his leading and to think about others besides ourselves. And, and often we fail. Kind of like learning to walk, falling down is a part of the process. There's no shortcutting around failures along the way. But if we keep getting up and we keep trying, we do eventually learn to walk. And that's what the world needs to see. Not not fake Christians who act more perfect than they really are, but but real Christians who who may often fail, but who can admit our failures and apologize for them and and who are genuinely seeking to grow in their characters. Let me tell you a story about this. I may have told this one before. When I was a young Christian in college, our, our Christian fellowship on campus decided to do an outreach week. And we set up a table in the student center with some literature and some posters which displayed big questions about God. We were hoping to use them to engage people in conversation. And, and the Gideons had also contacted our fellowship about a date they could hand out New Testaments on campus. And, and we said, well, why don't you do it during our outreach week one day? Well, it turns out that the day that we arranged with them um, to come, which was also a day we had our table up in the student center, was Rosh Hashanah. And one of the leaders of the Jewish Hillel group on campus was deeply offended. He, he accused us of being anti-Semitic, of uh, being intolerant, um, to push Jesus and the New Testament on a Jewish holiday. And before we knew it, several of us, including a couple older leaders of our fellowship, 
were sitting down with several of the Hillel student leaders and their faculty advisor, who was a professor of mine. And, and again, they started accusing and scolding us. We were being anti-Semitic. We were being deeply insensitive. And, and we replied in our defense, we didn't mean to offend you. We didn't even realize it was Rosh Hashanah. And, and they said, see, that's even worse. <laughs> it, you evangelicals are so ignorant of the other members of this college community, different from you, that you don't even realize it's our holy day. And, and I have to tell you, I was feeling more and more defensive. Um, the, the student who'd started all this, the, the, the leader, had, had a reputation for being touchy and ornery and for picking fights on campus. And, and I felt like he was just beating up on us and, and we were the real victims, not him. And, and so my mind was turning and I was trying to figure out how to argue, how to defend ourselves, how to, to make these guys see that they were being unfair and intolerant of us. I wanted to defend Jesus and be unapologetic for my faith. And then while I'm thinking this over, one of the older leaders in our fellowship, a guy I deeply respected, speaks up. And he simply says, we're sorry. He says, I'm sorry we offended you on your holy day. You're right, there's a lot of other days we could have held our outreach and um, shared our faith besides your special day, and we'll make sure that we pick a better time next year. And guess what? The whole feeling in the room changed in that moment. The tensions melted, the animosities disappeared. We asked them some more questions about their faith and their holidays so that we could better understand them. And, um, and they asked us some questions about ours, and we all left smiling and shaking hands. Now, whether you think that we needed to apologize or not, what I learned that day in principle is that it's okay for Christians to apologize and to admit if we're wrong. In, in fact, it should be natural because we of all people believe we're sinners in need of grace, right? <laughs> and, and so our lives should be exhibit A of how to mess up and ask for forgiveness. <laughs> we should be better at it than anybody else. Most people don't expect us to be perfect. And God knows becoming blameless and pure and without fault is quite a lengthy process that he's taking us on. But it is our identity. It's who we are and it's the purpose that he's working out in us and through us. And so the important thing is that, that we're moving forward, that we're growing into who we are. Lights shining like stars in the universe. We're meant to shine and so step by step, we've got to get bright. Now, I forgot at the beginning um, that we're going to have a couple stories as we've been living out this passage the last couple weeks um, of how a couple people have been seeking to respond. But hey, why not do it at the end here? So is Randy here? Who's going to share first? He's in the back room. So come on, Randy. I know you're watching. <laughs> So Randy's just going to share for a couple minutes uh, about this past week and how he's been trying to, what he heard God saying and how he was trying to respond this week. And then John will share after that. You thought you were off the hook? <laughs> I was hiding. Good morning. Um, yeah, actually, I just, um, last week when we had our discussion, I, I kind of made a commitment to um, seek God a little bit more on my daily, uh, during the day. So 
um, I just made a commitment to actually pray to him every morning and uh, and ask for him for guidance. And um, this week I was away and travel and stuff uh, with some colleagues of mine and with work, and uh, it was actually very insightful. And uh, I actually learned a lot from them, and uh, I hope that they learned a lot from me. And um, as Dick was just saying before, um, you know, I don't push God like um, you know I won't like sit there and kind of preach to them about God. I just be a nice person, and 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 I think. One of the girls made a comment that, like, you know, she's like, you know, you're one of the favorite, one of my favorite guys that I can talk to, and that kind of meant a lot to me because I was like, wow, it's just, you know, I'm not really trying to do anything for her, but it's just, you know, I just listen, and I think that like means a lot to a lot of people. So um, that's just one of the things that uh, that I hope that God is kind of leading me to do. So thanks, yeah. and John. Hi, I'm part of the sermon group too, and. Uh, as far as the grumbling goes, uh, I grumble a lot, and um, I judge, and uh, I judge other people, and I uh, I judge myself a lot, and um, and it doesn't really help me at all. And it's uh, it's something uh, like Dick was saying that I want to grow out of. It's something that I do uh, in and of myself. And uh, just like all sins, the sin itself makes me pay. And um, I hate it, you know, but as I'm doing it, I seem to love it. And uh, like when we're in the sermon group, um, you know, we have a facilitator and he's qualified. And uh, I like to talk a lot. And uh, so uh, when we have it in the morning, uh, first thing I tell myself is uh, don't say anything. Listen, listen. And uh Right away, he says, does anybody? And before he finishes the sentence, I'm like, Horshack, you know? And, uh, <laughs> and I can't shut up. And um, I think I sound good usually. When I come up here, uh, it's, it's really brutal. Last time I was up here, all I was supposed to do was read. And I know how to read, but you might not have known it the way I read because I forget how to breathe. And... Uh, because I have that grumbling going on inside my head, and uh, the grumbling's negative, and uh, it's me trying to be perfect, uh, like the examples Dick was given. And um, I do better when um, when I forget about me and think about you. Um, I do better when I remember that Jesus loves me, and uh, that's when I shine. Um, so when I'm thinking about how great I am. Uh, I'm pretty gloomy and doomy. And uh, so, yeah. 